Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The big news here in the city of Hamilton today, unquestionably, for today anyway, these these things, the, the way news has gone lately, uh, I can't promise you that what is news today is going to be topping the bill tomorrow. In fact, I'm probably sure it isn't. But today, certainly, the headline story is the bus strike. HSR is now on strike. But there is a lot more, in my opinion, there is a lot more to the negotiations that are going on with the HSR than just the HSR and the drivers and contract negotiations with them. Let me bring in Vito Scro. He's a former mayoral candidate, former liberal candidate, uh, commentator on local events. Vito, how are you today? Very well, Scott. How are you? I'm well. You, uh, it sounds like you're out waiting for a bus somewhere. <laughs> I'm waiting, but nothing's happening. Yeah, I was... no, I'm, go- I'm going to a, a liberal leadership event in Hamilton with the four uh, uh, contestants in the liberal leadership for, for the province of Ontario. So I pulled over. Well, that's good. It's it's uh, always the smart way to do it. All right. So we were just I was just talking with Dave Woodard in the newsroom before I came on the air, and I had said to him, over or under on a week for the length of the HSR strike. I'll ask you the same question: over or under on a week? Because of Grey Cup, there's a chance it gets done in a few days. If it doesn't get done for Grey Cup, it could last weeks, if not months. And you think that you think the city would be that um, inspired? Is that the right word? Motivated to protect the Grey Cup that they would, because you would have to acquiesce to an awful lot of the demands. I would think to get it done in that time. Well, what gets me angry here, and we spoke once about this before, Scott. Uh, last time I was on your show, the, the city has gone on this massive hiring spree of. Thing of positions called project managers and management, and they created a whole new division with a director for uh, the environment, which is important, but they could have did that with their existing staff. And they've, they've now added 25 to $30 million to, to our annual taxes because of these upper-tier management hirings. What did they think was going to happen when people like the HSR, the ATU, They've been on the front line. They've had to deal with people every day in the last two and a half years. Meanwhile, a lot of management got to work from home, and they're still working from home, getting huge increases. Now, I think the mayor said something, well, you know, there were uh, market adjustments of 8 9 10%. Those were 15% raises. And when you're making over six figures and you're getting a 14 to 15% raise, that's huge. So I find it very ironic and, and I, I'm, I'm actually kind of disgusted with the way the mayor and council have been treating the HSR and the other unions. When I was with the um, uh, HECFI, management there, which, by the way, went up five times in staff and wages, always would blame the ticket takers, the union people there for their costs. The city's doing the exact same thing right now, in my opinion. Do you? Okay, so I was talking, I, I can't remember who I was talking to yesterday. That's how short-term the memory is right now. But we were talking yesterday. Oh, John Best was on here. And I asked him this same question that I'll ask you. Yep. Did the city make a mistake when it gave its non-unionized workers increases of up to 15% prior to all the other negotiations having to come with their unions? Well, it would have been very cynical. They, I mean, in a cynical fashion, yeah, they made a mistake. But, but again, they, this is ideology. They, they, they hired all these people for this tent protocol, which, by the way, they're not following in the first place. They're going to hire a lot more people for this rental issue, which isn't going to work. It's proven out west that it's not going to work. But they're adding millions of dollars for these positions. 
again. And it's upper management, it's project managers. I don't know what projects they're talking about, but that's the new term now, project managers. Meanwhile, the average working person, like the bus drivers and the other unions, we haven't even talked about them yet. Wait till that starts. It's going to get even worse. I don't blame them after seeing what I've seen with this management raises. Well, and the reason I asked that question is because, and this is why I said in the introduction that I think that this HSR strike is about more than HSR drivers. There, I believe, let me just pull up the uh, story here. Uh, Andrea Horvath had a quote where they were talking about settling with HSR, with the ATU. Uh, We have 11 unions so they've got 11 unions still to follow that they have to negotiate with. If you give the HSR drivers the 21% or anything close to it that they are seeking, come on, you are screwed with those other unions because she's absolutely right. Every other one of them is now going to say, well, if you've got that money, then you've got it for us too. And the reason that the HSR, and they've said this very clearly, the reason they talked about it today at the, at the rally, the reason they're talking about this is because they saw the non-union staff who got that kind of money. Th- this whole thing seems to have been a set of dominoes that got started by being overly generous in my mind with the managers and the non-union people. And now they can't possibly follow that up with all the other unions or it'll cost us millions and millions and millions of dollars. Well, they should have thought of that when, when, again, through their ideological fashion, started uh, all these programs. They accelerated the bike lane program. I'm not anti-bike lane. But if we're in such trouble where we have housing units empty because we can't afford to do that, you accelerated your program for bike lanes up to $60 million when we didn't have to? That's an ideological choice you made. What the hell did you think was going to happen when these hardworking uh, union people down Below that, and I hate using that term, I didn't mean it in the derogatory fashion. What did you think was going to happen when you did that? They were just going to say, oh, that's okay, don't worry about us. I mean, inflation has hit them also. And especially with the ATU, they are on the front lines in the last three years. They've had to put up with the crap and all that other stuff. Meanwhile, a lot of the top management, they're still working from home. They didn't have that option, unfortunately. So, I'm sorry, I'm with the ATU on this. Uh, By the way, we're going to take a break, but just uh, want to play this one clip. You heard it on the news just before we came on here, but this was Mayor Andrea Horvath talking about the city's offer to the bus drivers. I said then what I'll say now. The city's final offer is reasonable and will not change. This is... A really, I think, a really interesting spot for her to find herself. And I don't think it's any secret as to why that would be, because after all those years as leader of the NDP that was in opposition, seemingly always arguing that the workers should get whatever they want, at least that's what it seemed, it's very interesting to see her have to take this position now and stand on the other side of the aisle. Well, if, if that holds true, that this is the final offer, then that, that this proves that Mayor Andrea, Andrea Horvath, who used to be the leader of the NDP, the People's Party, cares more about the, her leftist ideological projects than she does about the average person who really needs that bus service. There are people who don't have cars. They need that. There are students who need that. So obviously they spent so much money or are planning to spend so much money on those types of things versus that money that could have went for raises for the union people who do all the work in the city, by the way, um, then that, that tells people what they need to know, I think. Could it not also, though, on the opposite side, say that 
she doesn't want to move taxes any higher. I mean, you could argue that, well, we're, we're looking at that 14.2% and we're now realizing reality is about to strike. We can't add any more to that number. Well, then why didn't you think that before you started with all these projects you did in the last six to eight months? Why didn't you think that when you, st- you were hiring 260 people, most of them in six figures with, with wages and benefits? Why are you saying that now when the average working guy is going to have to take the, 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 the brunt of it? Why didn't you think that before? Where do you think? I mean, we, we started on Monday. We started with the proposals or the, the delegations for people coming forward to be, to sort of launch the budget process in the city. That this is, this is week one. Now it doesn't really get going in full steam yet, but it's begun. Where is this city and where is this council going to go with the budget? I mean, as I say, 14.2% is what we were told by the head of finance is the number right now. What do you think? Well, what do you think the actual number is going to come in at when they get it done? And what is the raise to our taxes going to be? Do you think? I think the threat of a tax revolt. I mean, it's starting in Burlington already. Calgary, there's a lot of stories, and they were at seven percent, and they were ready to torch City Hall. So I think when the actual numbers of this is really what we think it's going to be, because everybody knows Scott, you've been here before. They always start at a high number. They try to whittle it down, but you could whittle this down by a third, and it'll still be eight, nine percent. That's insane, still. So, it, yeah, I, I, I'd be shocked. I think you're going to see pushback, and I think a lot of councillors that might surprise you will start to question. Maybe we shouldn't have done what we've done. Let's cut back a bit. That's what I honestly think is going to happen because they could come in at seven percent, and that's still huge, huge. I don't. I, well. I don't think they could get down to seven, quite honestly. I don't. I don't believe they'll do that. And the other, and part of the reason, Vito, is if we look at, if history is any kind of guide, last year they had it to about, uh, they, they were at about 6.7%. They whittled it down and got to, I think, 5.8, 5.6, and then spent some more and got it right back up to six. They, like they, they, they got it down and then found more things to spend on. That's my concern. That's my concern that this is, that we may see something in the 10, 11, 12, it won't be 14.2, but would it, would I be shocked out of my mind if it was over 10? Not a bit. Then in my opinion, what I think will happen, a tax revolt will happen. Now keep one thing in mind. There's one thing different this year and next year that was not the same as last year. People's mortgages are now renewing and the shock. So if you were paying, I know, I know of a couple who make, Good money between the both of them. They both make six figures. Their their mar- mortgage was twenty seven hundred a month. It's close to forty eight hundred a month now. That's the difference in the last couple of years. It's going to be to the point where people will lose their homes. And you know, it was unheard of for a lot of people who are under thirty five to even think that's possible. But you know, Scott, we've seen it in the past. We've seen it in the U.S. where people were completely wiped out. We're hitting that point. Housing that, you know, somebody paid 800000 for is now worth six. Your mortgage is approaching that. Your payments are almost doubling. And don't forget, this is after tax. You've got to earn way more than that just to cover the new mortgage. Throw property taxes on top of that, and we're going to hit a crunch like people have never seen. But do you see this council... Uh, some of the things that you've pointed to of the projects that have come in, the bike lanes you cite, do you see the likelihood that this council 
will rethink some of those things and decide to change course and say, you know what? Yeah, we'd like to do those things. We believe in those things. We wanted to do those things. We passed the by the, the laws to do these things, but we have to change course and put those off for a while. Do you see sober second thought kicking in? Uh, I No, I see it from threats. Threats of losing your job, like them being booted out. And you know what? It could happen. I, I'm actually seeing a lot of pain. I'm retired now. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm fine. But my former clients and so forth, I, I still be, I'm in touch with them. And it's getting bad out there. They're, you know, people are starting to foreclose. Uh, they're starting to lose properties. They're getting very, very nervous. Throw on top of that uh, an 8 9% property tax, and we are, we're high as it is. And what is council doing? They're talking about all these pie-in-the-sky projects. They're bickering about getting going on industrial parks, which, by the way, brings in tax money. They keep screaming about a tree that it needs to be cut. Look, we all want the environment. We all have to protect it. But we also have to realize we, we need to sustain ourselves as a city. We, have to, we can't have the taxpayer constantly ponying up more because there's just no more to pony up at all. So, yes, I do think they will hit a point where people will say, that's enough. That's enough. I... I um, you know, I, 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 I actually want to believe that you're right, that there would be people who would say there's a limit. I just don't, I've never seen that happen. Every time that there's been a tax increase that people are not happy with, it seems to be a resigned shrug and a gritting of the teeth. And then, oh, well, I guess I just got to pay it. I, 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 I just, I don't know what that would look like because we've never really seen it. So, so let me tell you what I'm seeing out there. And, and the reason why I'm thinking that there are groups forming. And it's not just specifically taxes yet, because that hasn't really hit yet. But there's a group, there's two groups in Ward 9 because of the dump. There's a group in Ward 3 because of the homeless issue. There's a group in Ward 2 about the tiny homes. There's a group in Ward 1 getting angry about some of the issues there. These people are forming on their own, and they're, getting, and they're organizing. And to our friends on council, specifically the ones on the left, they're coming for you. They're coming for you. So that's... People are, I think they're getting to the point where we just can't sit back anymore. We'll be talking about this a lot more. Uh, Vita Scroll, really appreciate you pulling over and uh, having a good chat with us today. Thank you for the time. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. That music is from the Piano Man album, 50 years today that that album came out. And I thought I should say that because otherwise it was just a weird intro <laughs> to bring in my next guest. He is the MPP for Hamilton East Stony Creek. He's a minister of sports. His name is Neil Lumsden. How are you? <laughs> what? <laughs> At least you didn't play Frank Sinatra or something for me. Well, as I soon as it started... What was the 50-year reference? I'm like, come on, man. Yeah, Piano Man came out 50... The song and the, and the album came out 50 yeah. years ago today. But yeah, as soon as it started saying, like, you can play with my body or whatever, I was like, I better explain this one before I bring Neil on the air. <laughs> Uh, uh, not And by the way, not just MPP for <laughs> Hamilton East Stony Creek and Minister of Sports, but according to rumors all over the place, soon to be the general manager of the Edmonton Elks. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where that came from. No? <laughs> no, I don't. You didn't send in a resume? Uh, oh, no. Are you kidding? No. I, I mean, uh, first off is just the whole Elks thing still bothers me, so I can't get past that. Yep. But uh, no, no, there was none of that, Scott, none. All right, that was, I, and I tell you, I tell you if there was, but no, it's that report came out of the blue, and actually, I got when I was sitting in the legislature, I, one of my colleagues uh, sent me a, uh, and it was just before question period starts because I, I am, 
uh, paranoid is the wrong word, but I'm very sensitive not having my phones out when question period's on, especially since they moved me behind the main man, Paul Kleiner, who answers most of the questions. And so you're always in camera, so my phones go away. But this is about 10 minutes beforehand, and uh, he sent me a text saying, with a picture, my picture from um, WIF, or a, a Toronto Film Festival WIF, that's the Windsor Film Festival, uh, TIFF, and uh, at, at the red carpet, and saying, you know, Neil Lums in the... And I looked over at him, and he said this stupid smile on his face, and that's where I first saw it, uh, and heard about it, and then... Uh, you know, we had all sorts of fun about it after well, that, but yeah. If nothing uh, else, it's got to be uh, it's got to be a compliment that they would think that you would be capable of that. It's been a few years since you worked in the sports industry, so you know they obviously think well of you. Someone does anyway. Well, we I, do. Yeah, it is. It, it is very nice, and you know, if you do it once, you can do it again, right? And uh, whether it's two years or twenty years, doesn't matter. Well, okay, so let's talk about sports for a second, since that is, uh, you're st- I mean, you still are working in sports, just in a different way. Yeah. we got the Grey Cup coming up here. The, the festival starts next week, and the Grey Cup game a week from Sunday. Are you, are you a believer, whenever we hear reports of economic impacts on communities, are you a believer, A, in that concept that sports do generate these gigantic economic impacts, and B, that the numbers that we hear are accurate, or are they a little bigger than real. No, you know what? Uh, I, I've always been saying, okay, uh, you know, a little bit from uh, Missouri, show me, uh, from the show me state. And I've always said, okay, you know, I, I want to see how it translates. And, and a great example, and I've seen them since, and a great example was what I've seen with, and, and these are reports not done by the entity. In other words, the Hamilton Sports Group doesn't do it. They have an independent group do it, and it is all about economic impact and within the community core and otherwise. And, yeah, I believe them. When I see how they get to these numbers, when I see even more now that how they are used and how to benefit, you know, the community and the people within the community, it's almost like it's not only sport tourism, it's tourism in general, whether you're talking about um, a small community or a large community. When you When you go... When you come from another place or you're drawing a lot of people with great attention, both from television and locally, there is an impact. And the spending factor is huge. And again, just in tourism in general, uh, and I've been fortunate enough to meet with a lot of great people from a coffee shop in Huntsville during the summer, that if they didn't have people to when they do have people, it can make people's businesses thrive and allow them to stay in business or, and or take them over the top. So when you talk about a great cup game, uh, I, I mean, you and I both know fans in, in Canada with respect to football travel really, really well, whether they're in the game or not. And it's incredible. And what they're doing in Hamilton this, this time around is taking it to another level and having people stay, you know, one of the things I always talk about is if, in tourism, get someone to stay another day longer. And if you can do that, you can really ramp your business up. And what the Hamilton Sports Group has done is created uh, an event around the game that is going to be second to none and does exactly what it's supposed to do economically and for the community. And just, you know, the other thing is it, it creates a great feeling within community. Uh, there's no question about that. Sadly, the tire cats won't be in it. Well, let me ask you about that, Neil, because you just talked about the economic impact when you're bringing a lot of people in. And there's always a great to be now. Look, we're not talking about whether here in Hamilton, we wanted the tie cats to be in the game. Of course we did. 
But is it economically, do you believe, more advantageous to not have, economically, for them not to be in because now you are going to be drawing thousands of people, presumably from some other fan base who come here and stay in a hotel and have to eat all their meals out and do all the other stuff. Is it, economically, is it superior not to have the home team in the game? I'm not sure if the, the right word is superior. I, I think possibly the impact is a little bit greater because, though I think Hamilton fans still from outside of Hamilton, and you see that, and, and you know, I noticed this when, we're with the Tarcats and we started that train trip to Montreal and then to Ottawa. I mean, we'd fill up a train and everyone said, Oh, are you sure they'd get a few? No, people like and enjoy the environment going to another stadium. So I think that you'd find people from outside of the core coming back to Hamilton. But, uh, I, I do think there's probably a, a another incremental piece to that. If it's someone from outside of where the, the game is being held, I, I think you're right. There's probably a little bit more because, again, it's it's incredible. And I didn't really pay much attention to it as a player, but I noticed it more in the management side with the Tirecats and since gone to some games, uh, Grey Cup games, and, and the festival event around it, whether it's Spirit of Edmonton or Tigerstown or any of these, that uh, it's, it's a don't miss. It doesn't matter. It matters who's in the game. But it doesn't matter because they get on thir- they get here Thursday, maybe even a day earlier, and the fact that we're you know working in Niagara with the player awards and what's going on there is going to extend the impact, which is great. It's mm. um, that's what it's about. I mean, we can take a game like this, not we, but we're participating and supporting Hamilton Sports Group to, to make it a regional piece. Everybody wins. I do. The next thing, obviously, then is, is it, again, from a, from an economic position only, is it better to have teams further afield then? I mean, if Toronto wins, if Toronto could very easily qualify for the Grey Cup, and I'm not asking you to cheer for or against the Argos, that's not your position now, but, (laughs) but, but if Toronto wins, presumably there would be fewer people looking for hotels of their fan base because they would drive here the day of the game. Perhaps they may be even fewer people coming for the festival because they would drive here for the game as opposed to if Montreal gets in, maybe they come earlier because it's further away. Does that make sense? Well, it makes perfect sense. I think one of the things though, that uh, I've noticed again, the great cup, it doesn't matter whether it's Ottawa or Toronto, they take this as an opportunity to get out of their backyard and really, like, jump into the pool, if you will. So it's not just, okay, let's drive back and forth, and maybe we'll go to the player awards, but or maybe we'll go to the spirit of, uh, you know, or Tiger Town on Friday night, and we'll go back home. People will come and stay. And I think that's, that's part of the romantic piece of what Grey Cup offers, no matter where it is in the country, that it, it, it really it's, it's incredible how loyal the fan base is when it comes to the Grey Cup game regardless true. of who's in it. That's true. It's, it's, it's wild. I mean, it's really special. Is it better, you're, you're one of the very few people that can speak to this in this way, is it better to play in a Grey Cup game or go to the Grey Cup as a fan? Depends how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> Which is more fun. Oh, there, listen, there's, you know, the, the one sad thing about the sport of football, uh, unlike other sports, that when you retire, you never play the game the same again in hockey and baseball. I mean, you can play at a high level in, in hockey after you've finished, after you've retired, but football, you only put the equipment on and go after people when you're doing it. After that, flag football isn't football in my mind with respect to what 
I was used to doing. So there's nothing, Scott, nothing like being around your brothers in a locker room, working towards a goal with your coaches and understanding who you represent and why you're doing it within your community. Uh, Because that's the other thing about the CFL that I think more people know about now is the involvement in the community by the players. And the Tiger Cats are as good or better than anybody. And I've noticed it because when I've been out doing things, they've been there as well. And when I hear about them helping and working with the Hamilton Hurricanes on a food share or food collection, they're there. It's, uh, it's really incredible. So it's, um, I, th- there's nothing. There's nothing better than playing. But when you can't play anymore, it sure is nice to be received well uh, at, at the events and knowing that you've part of your DNA you've left behind um, for the next generation and you're still, you're very much respected for what you did as a player and, and in some cases as in management and other things. There's, there's a, there's a great appreciation out there that I, I, I guess years ago I took for granted, but I don't anymore because um uh, I'm reminded about it all the time. Yeah, awesome. well, that's uh, he should know. That is four time, four time, right? Four time Grey Cup yep. champion and Vanier Cup champion as well. Mm. Uh, champion Neil Lumsden, now MPP for Hamilton East Stony Creek, Minister of Sport. And despite his protests, who knows, somewhere down the road, maybe the Edmonton Elks <laughs> general manager, but not right now by the sounds of it. I uh, really appreciate coming on and doing this. Thanks for this. Hey, Scott. Always great to uh, join you on your show. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you were looking at the photos and some of the video that was captured on October the 7th when Hamas invaded and attacked Israel, there were some pretty outstanding and astounding photos that came from that. I mean, horrible photos, but remarkable photos that the photographers were right there when some of that stuff happened. To the point that now Israel has called out a number of news agencies, including the New York Times and CNN and Reuters and Associated Press, claiming that they were hiring photographers, freelance photographers, not staffers, but hiring freelance photographers who had been tipped off, they accused them of being tipped off. So they knew this attack was going to happen. They knew where to be in place. And they had foreknowledge that this was going to happen. Now, we don't have the ability to know whether that's true or not, though if you look at some of these photos, it is clear that photographers were seemingly very close to where the line was being broken. There are a lot of ethical questions that go into something like this. I want to bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin. He's a senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, thank you so much for this today. My pleasure. This is, uh, as I say, I want to reiterate that this is, Israel has called out these news organizations. They have denied that any impropriety was done or that their photographers knew this. But boy, this is an area that is fraught with ethical problems, isn't it? Oh boy, and it always is, uh, especially when it comes to the Middle East, because um, everybody wants to discredit somebody else in the process of doing the kind of reporting in the fog of war. And what we have here is the fog of journalism. Um, The New York Times has said that this allegation against this freelance photographer is completely untrue. They have denied that 
this man was working for them when an organization here in Canada called Honest Reporting claims that that he was working for the Times. CNN has fired one person for being what they consider to be uh, too closely involved with the Hamas side. I think what we're looking at now is how do you get the photographs that journalistic organizations and media organizations want without being party to one side or the other? Right. And right. I think that this is it takes me back to uh, uh, the American invasion of Iraq. Exactly. I was going to say that exact same thing with embedded reporters. And and I was at NPR at that time, and we had some reporters embedded. Uh, the Battle of Fallujah, as some may recall, yes. was when a Marine Corps unit went into Fallujah, and it was a bloody fight. And NPR had the audio of Marines being shot and killed and dying. Uh, and then we had to decide, all right, how did we get this? Did anyone have to... Uh, preview this audio before we could broadcast it. And then, most importantly, was it worth putting it on the air because it was so horrible and graphic? And in the end, it was pretty heavily edited. There were warnings that went out to the listeners of the NPR programming to say, you know, what what you're about to hear is uh, the sounds of American uh, Marines being killed. Um, and if uh, you may want to step away from the radio for five to 10 minutes. And in fact, we were kind of uh, uh, praised for being so careful. Um, but the issue of how do you, what happens when a military unit or a guerrilla movement in the or a terrorist movement says to a freelance uh, photographer or reporter, come with us, you, you'll get a good story here. Yeah. Obviously, the, the challenge for any media organization is to say to its freelancers, and there are a lot of them out there now, don't take an assignment on our behalf until you clear it with us. Jeffrey, the, let me let me jump in for just one second, because you raised a really interesting point, a thought about the, the embedded reporters, because as I recall, and you can correct me if I've got this wrong, as I recall, the embedded reporters never were told any operational information. They were basically told, get in the tank or whatever. And they knew nothing about where they were going or what they were going to see. They were there, but it was completely a surprise when they showed up. And that, I think, is the ethical question that we're looking at with this one. If you are told to go be at the gate or the fence or at the spot or whatever else, and you know, if there was an allegation that they knew what was going to happen rather than just a place to be, that would seem to change it rather dramatically. Right. It's never, it's a good point, but it's never as, as clear cut as, okay. as we would like it to be. Um, in those situations, the uh, the chat among the freelancers is extensive. And if someone says, I hear something is going to happen at four o'clock tomorrow morning, you got to be there. And then the, the rumor mills start and people show up and maybe it's something and maybe it's not. And the other thing is, and the Israelis would do this with, with uh, Western news uh, sources, including CBC and NPR, that the uh, Israeli military wanted to vet uh, the stories before we could put them on the air um, because they wanted to make sure that 
our reporting didn't reveal something that could be damaging to their war effort. Um, and that's kind of understandable. We're not going to say, okay, they've got 25 tanks lined up over here just to my right, uh, because that would give away uh, strategy and tactics. But uh, otherwise, the Israelis kind of left uh, NPR and CBC alone as long as we uh, showed them what we were going to uh, put on the air. And there were some instances where their censorship was, we thought, heavy-handed. And we said that on the air. We have a report here, but Israeli, uh, the IDF has said uh, that we may not broadcast this because it would reveal too much. We protested this, and so we will not be able to report as we wanted to. And that, I think, is fair game. You know, if a, if, if a military unit is saying uh, you can't report this, we will, we should, news organizations should say that, that we've been censored. All right, let me go to an example, because this whole thing seems to be what obligation, if any, would a reporter or photojournalist have if they knew something was happening to warn someone about it? So let us say that back on 9-11, someone had said to a photographer, "We, you really should be near the World Trade Center towers, maybe have your camera pointing up, something's going to happen. Would the obligation as a journalist be to be there to record that for history, or would your obligation be to tell police or someone else that, hey, I think something horrible is about to happen here? Boy, that that you put your finger on it right there. I think that uh, the obligation of a journalist is not to endanger anyone, um, and that if a journalist gets a, uh, a leak saying that something terrible is going to happen... I think the journalist has to talk to his or her editor. Uh, the editor has to talk to his or her manager and push it up the, the, the food chain in the media organization just to make sure that we are not endangering the public or endangering the journalist. And that's the, that's the, the, that the devil is in that detail. It becomes really complicated. Um, and often you don't have a lot of time to figure this out. So often, I think what news organizations would do is say, all right, let's go there and we'll worry about it later. But if there was, and using that example, and I know it's a horrible one because it's the worst case scenario possible, but if there had been that example and news organization, I was going to say X, but now that's Twitter, so I can't say that. News organization Z, uh, had we learned later, they knew about this. They got great shots, but they didn't warn anyone, and thousands of people are now dead. I don't think, ethics or not, I don't think there is a single person who would say you made the right call ethically. Well, I think you have an, one has an obligation um, not to endanger anybody, um, but you also have an obligation to get the story. And sometimes those two ideas are, are in serious conflict. I think if it were up to me, uh, and I was still in management, I would say, if we had the sense that there was some horrible event about to take place, I think um, I would suggest that our law department get in touch with the authorities. Even if it meant that a source who had told your person this would now feel that they had betrayed a confidence because, you know, media requires sources in order to get some of these things that we never would learn about otherwise. Well, that's the challenge. That's the that's the big dilemma of journalism. And the ethical dilemmas 
in journalism in wartime are enormous, as we're seeing now in, uh, in with Hamas against Israel. The uh, this one, I don't know. I mean, in Israel, certainly, uh, and maybe beyond, because if you look per capita, United States versus Israel, uh, there were more Israelis, more Jewish people killed per capita in this October 7 attack than Americans per capita in 9-11. If it were to turn out that somehow one of these photographers actually did know what was going to happen. And again, I don't know that they've said that yet, Jeffrey. I don't know that they've suggested they knew what was going to happen, just that they were that something was amiss. I don't know exactly what Israel's allegation is, but if it turned out they knew what was going to happen, what do we then say? What do we do? How do we change that? I think what you do is you figure out what the ground rules are as early on in the process as you can. Whether that's possible with Hamas, I don't know. It is possible with the Israelis to um, all of the correspondents that I've dealt with in the Middle East have had normal relations with press offices. And they understand the good press officers understand the demands of uh, the media organization. Sometimes they feel that the media organization is inherently biased against them. And that requires more uh, subtlety uh, to deal with. Um, and it, it's not just, I mean, it's not just the Israeli Hamas fight. I mean, there have been instances in Canada where the government of the day has said, we don't like what CBC is reporting. We're not going to invite you to a news conference. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Thankfully, and, we got to run. Thankfully, in those cases, there were not the same. Eth- there were ethical discussions, not the same though, because nobody presumably died in those. Certainly, not right. thousands of people died in those, and but we're the, not having to have the discussion about could somebody. And we don't know the answer. And I could keep going back to this, but could somebody have prevented this? It's it's such a it's such an absolutely loaded question, and one of the uh, as as you say, one of the really difficult ethical situations that is ever going to happen uh, in the media. Jeffrey Dvorkin, uh, always appreciate having you on. Always appreciate your thoughts. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's eight degrees outside right now, which is honestly quite lovely, but it will not be like that for long. Winter is coming. You know that winter, no matter how much we want to put it off, winter is coming. And here's the reality is that not everybody in this province, especially with the cost of everything, can afford to winterize their home the way it should be. Well, I want to tell you and have someone come on here and tell you if, as a help, if you are looking, if you are in the lower income bracket and you need help to get your home winterized, and some people listening certainly will fall into that category, there is a way to do that. Corey Morton is the Energy Conservation Supervisor at Enbridge Gas, joins me now. Corey, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you for doing this because I do think there are people listening who this will be applicable for, for sure. This is an opportunity for some people of, as I say, lower income Ontarians that through you and some other programs that can combine together, you can come and winterize their home. Explain what it is because you'll do a way better job than I will. Okay. Um, Enbridge Gas and Save on Energy, we've created a one-stop shop for income qualified customers to participate in the Enbridge Home Winterproofing Program and the Save on Energy Energy Affordability Program. So when you apply to one of these programs, you get screened for both. 
And so what that means and, and what you'll get is addict wall, basement insulation, draft proofing, smart thermostats, and appliances such as Energy Star refrigerators, freezers, window air conditioning, lighting, and more. And that's free? That's absolutely free. Even the appliances? Even the appliances. Why? How? Why? So, sorry, sorry, but nothing, nothing is free. I'm, I'm, I'm a cynic. I'm a skeptic. Nothing is free. Yeah, and most people are, and this is absolutely free, and it's legitimate. And the reason why we do this is Enbridge Gas and Save on Energy truly believe that everybody should be able to benefit from energy efficiency improvements. And we recognize that income and contracting are often barriers to um, participate. So we want to remove that goal and make sure there's easy access so everybody can participate in making their home more um, comfortable and they can manage their energy costs better. Okay, so what is, and I don't want to embarrass anybody who's listening, although I probably won't because they don't have to put up their hand to me, mm-hmm. what is the cutoff for this? I mean, when you talk about low income, um, let's say I've got a house of, there's four of us in a home, mm-hmm. what would be my income cutoff that I could qualify? So for four people, it would be about $85,000. So if it's a, whether it's seniors um, and their children living there now uh, with the way things are going, or if it's even single parent with their children, uh, it's easy for four people. And a, a lot of people don't, you know, often see themselves as a lower income at $85,000 a year. It's not a bad income. And that's part of the, the problem with, you know, getting the uptake is, um, you know, just getting people to be like, yes, this is for me. And it's, it's, you know, not to be offensive that you don't make much, but it's like, you know, the interest rates and inflation rates and everything are getting higher. So, um, you know, we're just making it broader so more people can apply. It, this is really not your issue, but is 85000 now considered low income? It, it, it is for this program. Oh, well, yeah, okay. No, no. That's a, all right. So how would somebody, if they want to do this, how do they apply and how do they get chosen and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so um, in order to qualify, you can go on our website. So it's embridgegas.com slash winterproofing or saveonenergy.ca slash EAP. Like I said earlier, if you apply to one program, you're going to get screened for both. And uh, there's also a phone number. It's 1-844-770-3148 if you rather call and talk to somebody live. Okay, now now that you've said it and some people are scrambling for their pens because they weren't expecting it and now they may have a pen. Tell the number again. Okay, it's 1-844-770-3148. And I'm just looking, we got to run here, but I'm just looking at the, the, the press release about this that I got about this and it says there are 480,000 customers in Ontario who would be eligible for this. I'm stunned by that. I'm stunned that there's there's no way you're doing 480,000 homes this You'll be very busy if you are. But but that I mean, I'm stunned there's that many people that would qualify potentially. Yeah, so to date of on the gas side, we've done 47,000 homes and on the electric side, 160,000 homes. But uh, specifically for Hamilton and the area that we're speaking to, we estimate that there's about 75,000 electric customers uh, that can get the benefits, like the appliances, and about 23,000 participants in Hamilton that can uh, take this offer up. Wow. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention one other thing. Not only is it income-based, but if you receive any government subsidy or any energy support, such as Ontario Works or Allowance for Seniors it can also automatically qualify you. 
I was uh, I was thinking that this was going to be a f- couple thousand, a few thousand people that would fall into it. But that's uh, there's an awful lot of people then that are listening that will qualify for this for sure. Uh, one more time, just before we go, the phone number one more time if someone wants to call. It's one eight four four seven seven zero three one four eight. That is Corey Morton. She is the energy conservation supervisor at Enbridge Gas. Uh, Corey, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us go to our good friend who writes on Briu.tv, uh, that, because that's his last name. Makes sense. Uh, his name is Bill Briu, great TV writer and pop culture writer. Uh, how are you today, Bill? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I am excellent, thank you. I'm probably, I guess I should be better now knowing the actor strike is over and my TV is going to be filled soon enough with all the return of all my favorite actors and actresses doing wonderful things, correct? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, sort of. I mean, <laughs> they, they definitely, I think they'll be back sooner than you think. Um, obviously, we, you know, that they've just reached an agreement. The membership have to vote on it. The leadership has to vet it. You know, there's, there's a few things, little odds and ends, but this is going to get done. Um, the better news, I guess, is the writers have been back to work for six weeks. So they've all been writing new episodes of shows that you're not seeing this fall, like all the hour-long import dramas, NCIS or Law & Order or FBI this or that, um, or Abbott Elementary on you know ABC. Um, but you wouldn't see any of these until January. We're, we're sort of in the perfect time for this pause to be happening because – in a few weeks, there'll be nothing but Hallmark movies on television. True. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it won't be January until you'll see anything really happen. Uh, the one scenario was that you might not see anything at all until next fall, but I do think that starting in January and February, a lot of your hour-long favorites uh, will be back on every week. So it means that we won't be like, cause I was expecting if this thing didn't get settled soon, that next year we'd probably be having like three iterations of the golden bachelor or it would have been, you know, <laughs> the golden bachelor and the something else bachelor and the something bachelor at the, you know, find some adjective or some group to, you know, just whatever, just anything to fill airtime. Yeah, that was the fear. And you're right. Um, I think that uh, a lot of these snake oil shows are going to be maybe one and done, but, um, you know, uh, what will they do? This is the beauty of it. Like right now you're seeing Survivor and the Amazing Race at, at 90 minutes. Um, but that'll end in at, in December when those this season wraps up. And probably next um, spring, when everything else returns, they'll go back to being 60-minute shows. You had, though, on your website, uh, once again, briou.tv, B-R-I-O-U-X.tv. I don't mind giving you a plug because it's excellent stuff on there. You had an idea that I fully endorse. I absolutely endorse this, which is, and a lot of this stuff is available now, but there are some fantastic, I mean, best ever sitcoms that are really, really, really hard to find. There's lots. I mean, CHCH here in Hamilton in the afternoons has a slate of sitcoms and dynasty and stuff. And that's fine. You know, three's company is, is sure. It's fine. Um, different strokes. That's fine. But some of the all time greatest ones have become incredibly hard to find. Mary Tyler Moore, for example, or as you point out, WKRP in Cincinnati, which for some reason just never seems to be on TV and syndication anywhere. Why not, if we are, why would the studios, if they're so hard up for 
because they haven't had an, they've had a writer strike and an actor strike. Why not bring out the gems of your vault and put them on TV? Yeah, I agree. Uh, now, in the case of WKRP in Cincinnati, there's a uh, there's a good reason, and that's when they Licensing? originally right when yeah. they made the deal to license all those music. They didn't clear it forever. They just cleared it for a couple of reruns, and so. Um, that show got stripped of all the music by the Rolling Stones and Wings and Michael Jackson, and they added uh, generic kind of rock music, and it was awful. So uh, in order to be released on DVD in a box set, which it was about 10 years ago, uh, Shout Factory renegotiated the rights, and they managed to put 80% of the music back in. I think Pink Floyd held out, you know. but um, Somebody had so to. It, yeah, but... Um, so that's one reason. But a lot of those shows, you're right. Mary Tyler Moore, why, why isn't that on the air? Why Why is it just uh, the Partridge family? Yes, but this one, no. And it's just different networks and deals have it. You know, if, if Paramount originally made a certain show like Frasier, um, it's only going to ever resurface on Paramount Plus now. You know, like the, these companies have their own deals. There are uh, ways of watching these shows. Um, I think it's Apple TV Plus or Disney Plus. You can buy episode by episode of Mary Tyler Moore, which I didn't even know about it until we run that story. Um, yeah, but that starts totally to add up fast. I mean, if you're already paying for a bunch of streaming services, now you're paying two bucks or whatever it is for each episode or a dollar fifty. I mean, a dollar fifty is fine, but you suddenly you've got what Mary Tyler Moore had like eight seasons and probably 25 episodes a season. That's a costly investment to buy it piecemeal. Well, you're right. So, Scott, here's another way to do it is to watch them online. And there's a, um, a place called Catchy Comedy, C-A-T-C-H-Y, comedy.com. And it has all of those shows, Mary Tyler Moore, Rhoda, uh, a lot of others, um, as uh, that you can stream online, and it's free. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, other services, you can look around YouTube, and they have something. So there are ways around it, but it is sort of surprising, aside from CHCH, which has Dick Van Dyke and Annie Thomas in the morning and a lot of things like that. Um, it's harder and harder to find some of these shows that a lot of us grew up with or just assumed would always be there. Do you think, though, okay, so you and I and many people listening would hear, oh, yeah, Mary Tyler Moore, fantastic, great show, I would watch that again, but do you think there's an audience for young, now I don't even know if there's an audience for younger people watching TV, broadcast TV, period, but, but would younger people, would a younger audience tune into those or is that their parents or their grandparents show and they would ignore it? Or does it matter because there's enough older people still watching? Well, that's, I think, the, the second part. I, I do think, you know, recently I was, I've been showing older um, TV shows on 16 millimeter at the Westdale Theater yes. in Hamilton. And the, the folks we have coming out are generally older people who remember those shows fondly. They're not, you know, uh, students from McMaster, really. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, a show like Friends, we just mourned uh, Matthew Perry, that was so embraced by Gen Y, by Gen X, like when Matthew Perry died, um, that really hit a lot of younger people hard because it was such a hit on Netflix. It was just like The Office. So many people saw it 20 years later there. So it, it depends. Um, I think reaching all the way back to Mary Tyler Moore in the, in the 70s is, uh, is quite a ways back. I don't know if young people would be on that show. 
more of it's more of a curiosity that it's ooh a, a show about a working woman. <laughs> How did that get yeah, on? Yeah, but air? it's yeah. so well written that like I I I'm embarrassed to say this. I did not watch Mary Tyler Moore growing up. I didn't like until six or seven years ago when it was on somewhere. I can't remember. What, and I I so I watched it for the first time, and it's so well written that I don't know that it matters what the topic was really. It's just a great show. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're preaching to the converted. I, I love all those, and Dick Van Dyke show as well. To me, what I wish they had, I wish, we've had some nostalgia channels in Canada, that especially when specialty channels were newer, um, that somebody could, if they only programmed some of these one-season wonders that were ahead of their yeah. time, and, and, you know, shows from 1969, there's a few of them, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Room 222, um, my world and welcome to it. There's about five people listening who know what I'm talking about, Scott, <laughs> but, but they were wonderful shows that only have 24, 30 episodes and out. And, um, you know, I think we've all seen Mary Tyler Moore. Well, you were late to it, but a lot of us have seen every episode a few times. Um, I think it would be really helpful to put some of these other shows in circulation that, that, people, I think if they discover them now, might find they really like them. we got to run, but the one thing that makes me wonder if there's a reason why these shows, I mean, WKRP licensing, okay, I get that, but some of these other ones, I cynically, I wonder if some of the studios are loath to rerun these on their networks, not just on cable stations, but on their networks, because so much of the stuff they've got now compared is such crap. That I don't know that we really want to show how far we've fallen. Maybe you know one of the evergreens. Just quickly, is Mash. It's still a draw. Yep. I think it, the CMT runs it here, or you know, there's it, it shows up. And when you look at the ratings, or when they used to be available, it was it's really amazing how consistently that show still draws an audience. Mm. So I think some always will do better than others. Uh, you can read much more about this on uh, Briou, B-R-I-O-U-X, Briou.tv if you want to. Uh, Bill Briou, always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.